I want you to turn to two verses tonight. First of all, I want you to find Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 33, I'm sorry, chapter 34, and then after you find Isaiah 34, put your hand there or mark it in some way and turn over to the book of Numbers chapter 23. So Isaiah 34, Numbers 23. If I was to title the message tonight, it would be a promise and a precept. A promise and a precept. It's amazing how consistent the Word of God is. Over, well, not amazing since it's God who did it, but uh, over and over again, God tells us the same thing. And it seems like He has to tell each generation, the same thing over again because we don't get it. Matter of fact, same generations have to hear the message several times because we're just not very sharp. I mean, the reality is we are not very sharp. Even the very basic of things today, you'd think that had been settled a long time ago, are not settled. I mean, when you've got 71 different genders that some governments have uh, acknowledged when you've got a Supreme Court justice that can't define a woman, and she was one, or is one. I mean, it's, it, this, it's bizarre. This is nuts. These people are supposedly educated, and they're stupid. I'm not trying to be unkind. They're just stupid. But then we do, we're the same way. I mean, all around today, and I'm sure not just in this country, but all around today, as much as God has exalted his word, he's even exalted it above his name, he's, he's always responded the same way to sin, always. And yet in churches all around today, we've got pastors and people who are willing to compromise what God said in his word, that's never worked out good for anybody. Never. Not one time has it worked out good for anybody. And so we find the pastors who still stand by the book are fighting exactly the same battles that they've been fighting for the last 40 years. Because the battles didn't start 40 years ago. They've been going on since God gave his word to mankind. You would think people would learn, but they don't learn. So we're going to cover some very basic things today uh, with a promise and a precept. I want you to notice in Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Now this is given by Moses or given to Moses for his people. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he makes this plain to God's people. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Now that's written about 1400 B.C. 700 years later, we have the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 34 and verse 16, God gives this word. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. 
No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. Now, you realize God does not predict the future. God promises the future. This is not a book of predictions. This is a book of promises. If God says something is going to take place, it takes place. It always takes place. God has never missed in one of his prophecies. For instance, all the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ were fulfilled literally just exactly like God said. It is only right to assume that God's going to fulfill all the promises concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ exactly the same way. When God gave his word to Israel, he gave him a warning like Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 to 28, uh, when he said, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if he will obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, a curse if he will not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. And then he gives a list of blessings that God would bless them with if they obeyed him completely and curses if they didn't. You go to the book of Judges and guess what happened? They disobeyed him. They got the curses. Whenever Israel walked contrary to his word, they got the curses. Do you realize God promised that they obeyed him there wouldn't be any poor people in Israel? I believe a nation that will follow God, God will honor that. Because he says that he will honor those that honor him. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. He honors us. God keeps his word. He always keeps his word. What's the problem? Man doesn't honor him. Man wants there to be exceptions for him. All right, you've got rules to live by. Live by them. I don't need to. I'm more spiritual than that. It's not necessary. Now, we know that life seems kind of full of questions. Our kids start out with why, 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 why. Man has a natural thirst for knowledge, but he does not always have a thirst for truth. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, often when man seeks a truth or sees a truth that limits his freedom, he looks for some way around it. So rejecting truth, he finds a reasonable justification that fits his desires. That forces him to come up with the craziest and sometimes the wickedness of ideas, like it's become very popular in the last year for people to proclaim that men can get pregnant. Listen, this has given all the major news media have had politicians and different ones espouse this new truth to them. It's a post-truth. You know, post-truth, it doesn't have to be true. You just got to believe it's true. If you believe it's true, and that makes it true. That's post-truth, which has destroyed our whole nation. People can't think straight. So you've got drag queens doing raunchy performances in front of five-year-olds in public schools. And the truth is, the people ought to be up in arms. 
they're getting away with it. This is absolutely insane. So when man justifies wrong to fit his desires, that forces him to come up with some of the craziest and many times wickedest of ideas. It's like someone said one time, you know, man is so strange that you can tell a man that there's a hundred million stars out in space and he'll believe you. But you put a sign on a bench outside that says wet paint don't touch. He's got to touch it to see if it's wet or not. That's mankind. It's the way we are. It is that way about spiritual things in life. As long as God is an understanding non-participant, then man's willing to believe in God. But when he finds out that God is running the whole show and that, he, and that God has given man guidelines, man does his best to prove that God isn't so. We don't like God, the guidelines. You understand that freedom is not the freedom to do as you please. It's the freedom to do what you ought. You see, to do as you please, there are some people who think it's all right to push people over the subway wall in front of a sub, subway. There are people who think it's all right. I just saw a video tonight of a bunch of young people on a bus throwing, this was a public bus, throwing an older lady off the bus. Or crowds of young people going into a drugstore or into a 7-Eleven or something like that and just taking everything they can get a hold of. And they think it's right. It's what they want to do. That makes it okay. It's not okay. And nobody is free in a society that lives like that. Man ends up the fool every time. With Moses in the wilderness, God made a promise that he would fulfill all of his promises. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, 700 years later, the prophet was sent by God to preach to a disobedient nation, telling them that judgment was about to fall and it was going to fall upon them because they had done the very things that God 700 years before in the first five books of the Bible, given to Moses, told them what would happen if they would disobey God. He told them their problem was their fault. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sin has hid his face from you that he will not hear. Of course, the people were doubting God's word, and he offers them this proof. In this verse, he says, Seek ye the book of the Lord, and read. And that's the answer. Get back to the book. He told them in Jeremiah that we were to go after the old paths. I mean, we have a book, the revelation of God, never proven false in any detail whatsoever, any observable discovery or fact. And yet man still wants to doubt. Because you see, the book's a straight book. It's truth. Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus said in John 17 to the Lord, to the Father, thy word is truth. Jesus walked in accordance to his word. 
As a matter of fact, one of the main reasons that I am a Baptist, I am an historical Baptist, not just an hysterical Baptist. I am an historical Baptist, and that is Baptists have believed the number one tenet, the first tenet of the Baptist has been this, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God and is the final rule for faith and practice. See, that's the reason we don't have women deacons, nor do we have women pastors. Because we believe the Bible is the final rule of faith and practice. The Bible is very plain. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. He says, I suffer not. That is, I allow not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, the pastor has authority in the church. If the pastor was a woman, that means they'd have authority over the men in the church, and they can't. When he gives the qualifications for pastors and deacons, the only two offices in the church, when he gives the qualifications for them, they're to be the husbands of one wife. Only in this modern society where we've changed the definition of the very basics of mankind does that even seem feasible then by those verses for a woman to be possibly be a pastor. You see, they can't be because in a Baptist church, in a real Baptist church, because Baptists have always believed it's the final rule of faith and practice. The reason that we baptize by immersion and not sprinkling. The word baptize means to immerse, to dip, to put in two. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 tells us that it pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. So we don't baptize by sprinkling. Now, those who sprinkle will say something idiotic like this. They will say, well, we already have one ordinance to the church, the Lord's Supper, that pictures his death. We don't need two. We need as many as God tells us we need. He gave us two. That settles it. We're not sprinkling anybody. Why? We believe the Bible is the final rule of faith and practice. But I want you to get this. I don't just believe it's the final rule of faith and practice in the church. I believe it's the final rule of faith and practice in life. When he tells us we're not to do certain things, we're not to do it. Bible says this, Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. The only time the word success is used in the scripture is in that verse, Joshua 1.8, and it has to do with how you treat and how I treat the word of God. So he tells the people, seek ye out the book of the Lord, and read. It is amazing to me that some modern day psychic can get one out of 30 of their predictions right for the year and they are touted as being amazing. Remember people used to follow Jean Dixon. She had an amazing record. There's this guy, his last name's Friedman, that uh, has a, now this is according to his website, has a 71% accuracy rate in all of his predictions, a 71% accuracy rate 
in the last 25 years. And people are going, wow, isn't that something? No, because God's prophets have a 100% rate. As a matter of fact, that's the rule for whether or not they're of God. If they miss one, then they're not of God. That's God's standard. You don't seem too shocked about that. Well, that's good. All right. So here's a book, never proven false, always 100% accurate in all things. So let's ask a few questions. All right. Is the Bible true? According to Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 16, seek ye out the book of the Lord and read, no one of these shall fail, none shall one or mate. In other words, everything God says will take place, there will be a fulfillment of it, count on it. None of them's going to be sitting off alone unfulfilled. Everything will be fulfilled exactly like God said. Now you see that in all the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus. You see it in all the prophecies that were given by the prophets of God to his people, every one of those, when they fell into sin and judgment was going to come upon them, it always happened exactly like God said over and over again. Not one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate. Now, not only in prophecy is the Bible true, but it's true in anything it says anything about. The Bible is not primarily a history book. And yet everything that it says about history is absolutely true. The Bible is not primarily a science book. And yet every statement it makes about science is exactly true. Um, When it comes to archaeology, we see the Bible has been proven true over and over again. A noted archaeologist by the name of Dr. Nelson Gluck, Uh, said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. There for a while during the time of the higher critics in the latter part of the 1800s that began over in Germany with higher criticism, They were doubting the authenticity of the book of Moses. That, As a matter of fact, they say that those first five books were written by at least five different people and not written by Moses because, you see, when Moses was alive, nobody wrote. And then one day they found the Hammurabi Code. The Hammurabi Code was written, written 2000 B.C., 600 years before Moses came along. So obviously, people have been writing for a long time. Why would they even make such a dumb statement? They made the statement because they were just trying to keep people from believing that God had anything to do with this book. That's what higher criticism was all about. Um, they said that there were, there's, the Bible can't be right because they had not found anything. This was back in the 1800s and first part of the 1900s. They hadn't found any people named the Hittites. And then guess what happened in the first part of the 20th century? Suddenly in their archaeological digs, they found the people named the Hittites. Exactly like God said. Just because they've not made a particular discovery doesn't mean that it wasn't so because all the other things God said have been proven true over and over again. There was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. He was an unbeliever. And he set out, going through the book of Luke and especially the book of Acts to prove that the Bible wasn't true. 
One of his main tenets in the beginning was this, that there is no way that Paul could have made the travels that are stated in the book of Acts in the time frame that they were given. No way it could have happened. But he got to studying when he got all done. And his study was intense. When he got all done, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a firm believer and apologist of the Bible. By the way, an apologist is not somebody who apologizes for the Bible. He is a defender of the Bible. Matter of fact, I have a series of six books by Sir William Ramsey where he shows conclusively how those things all had to take place exactly like it said in the Scripture. How unlike the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is a book, I believe, written by a man by the name of Solomon Spaulding and was plagiarized by Joseph Smith. He said that God, or the angel Moroni, gave him a vision that there were these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that had been buried. These tablets had been buried in a hill in New York. And he found them. And he had this seer stone. And he would cover up his head. He had eight witnesses around him. But he would cover up his head and look at the stones. And then he would speak out what the interpretation of those tablets was. I believe he was reading from Solomon Spaulding's book. Now, the tenet of the Book of Mormons, I don't know if you know this or not, but it supposedly is a story about how after Jesus ascended up into heaven, that he then traveled over to America and dealt with different Indian tribes in America. The only problem is none of those tribes of people have ever been found at any time. And do you know that the Mormon church has spent multiplied millions of dollars trying to prove the places, the money, the tribes, all of it, and they can't find any of it. But here's a more amazing thing. The Book of Mormons does not teach what the Mormons believe about God. It teaches exactly the opposite. But who takes the time to read it? I have a Book of Mormons. And mine is all marked up with a whole bunch of verses in the Book of Mormons that teach exactly the opposite of what they believe about God. A famous saying of one of their prophets was this, as man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. That means that God has to change. And yet there's a passage in the Book of Mormons that said if God changed, then he would cease to be God. Now, we know God doesn't change from the book of uh, Malachi, or Micah, no, that's not right, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, when he says, I am the Lord, Jehovah, and I change not. Scripture says of Jesus, uh, that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. Now, isn't it interesting, the Mormons believe that Elohim was once a man who became a God, and the goal of every Mormon man is to become a God with many celestial wives where he can populate his own earth. I mean, it is such a wicked fairy tale. It's hard to believe that any thinking person could ever follow such drivel if you know your Bible. 
Now, an amazing thing, I'm giving you a little extra stuff here, you understand that. Amazing thing about the Mormons is that the only Bible that they will listen to or read from is the King James. What about when the King James disagrees with Mormon doctrine? They say that that part was not correctly translated. How about that? So they'll use it as their authority, except where it disagrees with the Bible. Now, I, there's a lot more I could give you about stuff like that, but nevertheless, uh, the point is we have a book that is true. The Bible is true, every bit of it. Number two, does science disprove the Bible? Example, is evolution true or not? Well, our answer to that, the answer from Isaiah would be, seek ye out the book of the law and read, or the book of the Lord and read. I have a book in my library called The Biblical Basis for Modern Science because science is supposed to be the study of observable facts. When you've got a bunch of godless men who are leaving the study of observable facts, like, for instance, the second law of thermodynamics. If you follow the second law of thermodynamics, it is absolutely impossible for evolution to take place. Impossible. How does an evolutionist get around that? He'll say something like this. He'll say, well, you have to understand is that that's in a closed, the second law of thermodynamics is in a closed environment. And you see in an open environment, anything can take place. Yeah, just like men can get pregnant. Anything. But of observable science, it's not possible. So you can get them going all the way back to billions and billions and billions of years. Billions of years is the savior for the evolutionist. Because you can't prove them wrong. I mean, it's the savior for them. Billions of years. And then they'll give you this drivel that a long time ago there was a small little dot. It exploded because of the heat that built up. And it exploded and out of that came everything that is. Well, how did life come out of that? Because explosions destroy life. They don't bring life. And you can't get life out of death. It's dead. It's just dirt. Dirt stays dirt. It doesn't have any will to change to do anything else. How do you get life out of that? And then with all the, oh, well, billions and billions of years it happened. Huh. Try to figure that one out. By the way, there are three basic laws of uh uh, evolution laws, and uh, each one of them proved the other two are impossible. Just possible. Impossible. Anyway, that's what they do. Uh, many scientific discoveries have come from the Bible. Do you realize when the scripture says man was formed out of the dust of the ground that the 16 basic elements found in the human body are also found in earth? The same 16. Bible says in Genesis 3:19, "Dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return." 3,400 years ago or more, Job said, "The earth hangs on nothing." Wow, we know that now, don't we? Well, Job knew it. It hangs on nothing. Now you had the Greeks and some of the um, some of the cult religions uh, from like India and different places that taught that the world was on the back of a of a strong giant or on a, the back of a big elephant. No, it hangs on nothing. 
2,700 years ago, Isaiah said the earth must balance, and it does. 3,400 years ago, Job said uh, the earth hangs on nothing. I gave you that one. 3,000 years ago, David, in writing about creation in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9, talked about how God created the paths in the sea. That's the currents. Do you know when man discovered that? Man discovered that in about 1824, a fellow by the name of Matthew Morey was reading the scripture. He read about the paths in the sea and he wanted to check to see if there were currents that flowed in the earth. So he set about experimenting and you know what he found out? That those currents that are running in every ocean, that they're there. The currents that take you around, around the equator and up and over to the north and in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, those currents are there. It was found by man because somebody was reading their Bible and said, isn't that interesting? Paths in the sea. Over 200 years ago, when George Washington died from influenza that he could have recovered from, he was bled by the doctors because they had a false belief that if you were sick, it meant that you had poison in your blood and the way to get well was to bleed you, to take some of your blood out. So here they were bleeding him and on the night table right beside his bed was a Bible that said, life is in the blood. They were draining the very life from him. And all they would have had to do was read their Bible. Well, what about how all this came about then? Well, what does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That should be enough. Let me give you a third thing. How about the Bible, or is the Bible the word of God? Seek ye out the book of the law and read. In 2 Timothy, or book, I'm going to quote this right yet. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That ought to be enough. By the way, the words that's translated by inspiration, given by inspiration, is the word theopneustia. It literally means God breathed. So, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is that God breathed it through men. Puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Now, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Just like God breathed the breath of life into Adam... So God breathed the word of God through the writers of the scripture. They could not make a mistake. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Verbal is the words and plenary means all of it. Now, for some reason, there are some guys, uh, when, when you make that statement, say, oh, you believe in mechanical dictation. Well, I really don't have a problem with that. Because after all, they couldn't write something that God didn't want written. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's like if I, if I give a letter from me for my secretaries to type, if I record it and give it to them and they type it up, they can put my name on it, uh, it's from me. But 
as I read it over, I make sure that, hey, this thing is right. God is already in control. When Matthew sat down and wrote the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, um, Abraham begat, that's, I forgot the verse. Well, when he wrote it anyway, God was moving his hand, so he wrote exactly what God wanted. There's no error in it. And God has preserved his word for us. We don't have to have the original manuscripts to believe our Bible. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That ought to be enough for all of us. Jesus believed the word of God. Matter of fact, turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It's just basic stuff. But you know, when things start going haywire, it's always good to get back to the basics. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Who doesn't love the Beatitudes? We all love the Beatitudes. They're wonderful. They're marvelous. But unfortunately, especially the more liberal you get, it seems like that's where you stop reading. But notice Jesus is talking. He says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Well, let me ask you a question. Has uh, heaven and earth passed yet? No, then it's still good, isn't it? God has preserved his word. Then he goes on to say, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now he doesn't tell us what the least of the commandments were. Doesn't have to. It's not important. Because he defines sin for us. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And if you're talking about the size of sin, tell me, how big was the sin that Adam and Eve committed? Now think about this. With all the trees in the garden, God picked out one tree. He said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat... Thereof, ye shall surely die. Now, when they ate, by the way, they didn't cut the tree down. That meant there would be a lot more fruit still on it, but they didn't cut the tree down. We don't know that they ate more than one. But as soon as Adam took that bite, death came. And he was separated from God. Death is separation. He would eventually die physically. His body began to die at that time. As did Eve's when Adam took that bite. Now, was that a big deal or a little deal? He didn't commit immorality. He didn't kill anybody. Well, the reality is he did. He killed us. You understand that? Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all of sin. But just eating one fruit, surely that can't be a big deal. 
It wasn't a, a big, big sin, was it? But see, we try to make the things we do. Oh, that's just something little. Quit majoring on the little things. But I got news for you. If God says something, it's not little any longer. He means it. We need to look at God's word right. Now, you might ask, preacher, why are you going through these things? I mean, this is very, very basic stuff. And we've heard this stuff before. I know, but we act like it's not important. We have revival coming up. He's not coming in to preach a bunch of funny stories. He's not coming in to simply give us psychology. He's coming in to preach the word of the living God and what the preacher will have to say. As long as he preaches the book, we better pay attention to it. I want us to get it. So it is the word of God. So how about this question? Is there really a hell? And will people go there? Is there really a hell? Well, Jesus speaking in Matthew 25, 41 said, Then shall they say unto them on the left hand, Depart me, cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But now, when Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus, he said, The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy upon me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. We go on to learn, by the way, that Abraham makes it known to him that there's a great gulf fixed so that anybody wanting to go to him and put that drop of water on his tongue can't and that anybody that was where he was at couldn't get out. Now... And there are some folks that want to tell you, oh, don't worry about that. It's just a parable. Prove that one. Just prove it. How can you possibly prove it's a parable? There are a lot of things Jesus called parables. He didn't call that a parable. There's no, there's no story Jesus told where he called it a parable where he gave the names of people involved. But even if it was a parable, what did parables teach? They had central truths. The purpose of the parable. I'll tell you what, you die and go to hell, you're there for good, you're not getting out. That's pretty plain. It's hot, there's fire. Hell is real. Jesus says it's real. I've had people say to me, I had one man say to me on visitation, he said, you can't prove to me... That you can't show me one verse in that Bible that tells you that people are in torment forever. And so I said, well, that's interesting because Revelation 14, 11 declares, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Yes, hell is real. Bible says in uh, Revelation 21, 8, the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and idolaters and sorcerers and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Yes, hell is real. Just go to the book of the law, Lord, and read. Is Jesus the son of God? Let me show it to you. Turn over. There are more verses, but I don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, John chapter 21. 
John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John tells us why he wrote the things that he wrote in the book of John. He says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That ought to take care of it right there. He is the Son of God. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one in verse 30, the Bible says, And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you of my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Jesus said unto them, for a good, or the Jews said unto him, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. They knew who Jesus was claiming to be. They did the same thing, by the way, in John chapter 5, after the healing of the impotent man. And you've got the prophecy back in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came. And he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. That's Jesus. He is that child that would be born. The Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. Yes, he's exactly who he said he is. Then someone would ask, was he the only way to heaven? Do I need to go through those verses again? He is the only way to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm going to tell you what. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll say a Muslim can go to heaven, but he's got to turn to Jesus Christ. But then he won't be a Muslim anymore, will he? You see, fame him being Christ, he's a new creature. A Hindu can go to heaven, but he has to turn to Christ. When he does that, he won't be a Hindu anymore. Yeah. You say, well, preacher, you know how many people disagree with you on that. I'm not their problem. Their problem is Jesus Christ. He said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Peter believed that. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, I'm going to show you something that people get mad at me about. All right. I know that that shocks you. But turn to John chapter 10. Tell you how narrow-minded Jesus was. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. By the way, in verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Speaking of himself. Then verse 3, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger, now get this verse, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. All right, let's just take an example here. Uh, let's take, uh, let's take a Catholic. He hears the scripture. He decides to trust Christ as Savior. 
He takes Christ as Savior. And, of course, to him, religion has always been found in the Roman Catholic Church. But now he's recognized it wasn't in the church. It was only in Christ. The gospel was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And only through Jesus can you get to heaven. Can't get to heaven through Mary, anything else. But he has always been impressed by the religiosity of Catholicism. And so it seems only natural that the first thing he would do that first Sunday is go to his Catholic church. Now he's saved, he's excited. Matter of fact, I had a youth pastor that worked for me when I pastored in Manchester, Tennessee. He had even gone to a, um, uh, it was a monastery to study for the priesthood. He trusted Christ as Savior. I want to say it was a Bill Rice revival that came to town and somebody invited him to it and he went to the revival. He trusted Christ as Savior. He went back to the school and as he was, he meant he was devouring the scripture and he started talking to the other students about all the different things in scripture and they started calling him uh, Don the Baptist. His first name was Don, obviously. And, um, but here's the thing. That man goes back to the Catholic Church and he hears a false gospel, another gospel. According to this, he'll flee. He'll flee. He doesn't go back and stay. He flees. Uh, dear brother, uh, Bob Mosley, he's my assistant pastor in Manchester for a few years, good godly man, loved the Lord. He had lost his wife a few years before. He was not saved. Uh, he had lost his wife. He was watching TV, depressed. He saw, I want to say, it was Brother Falwell's broadcast on the TV. And he got down beside the TV, kneeling at his chair that he sat in, and he took Christ as Savior. Man, I mean, he got up, gloriously saved, excited about it. Well, to him, the most sincere people about their faith that he could think of were Jehovah's Witnesses. And so that next Sunday, he went to the Kingdom Hall. The guy started preaching. He got up and walked out. Why was that? Because his sheep flee from the voice of a stranger. Now I know that's not popular to talk like this, but I'm not the one who taught this. Jesus taught it. And that's pretty plain. Anybody who preaches another gospel is the voice of a stranger. Well, my time's about up and I only got five more points. <laughs> Uh, what must happen for me to go to heaven? Seek you out the book of the Lord and read. Uh, you got to be born again. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not, I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Bible says, but as many as received him, to them give you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, preacher, what about all our good works? Okay, seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Bible says in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. You can't do a work to get you to heaven. By grace you're saved. Take Christ as your Savior. He'll save you, give you eternal life. And your works had nothing to do with getting you saved, and they have nothing to do with keeping you saved. That's his work. That's what he does. Now, I can give you a lot more verses. And like I said, I've got other stuff here that just to touch on them um, wouldn't be fair to each one of these points. Maybe I'll cover them in another message soon. But we've got a week's worth of preaching coming up. The point I want you to get is this. This is the word of the living God. This is his book. And he meant it. Now, it seemed like Israel never got that. Isn't that right? Even though they would treat the word of God special, but then they'd leave it. And it would happen exactly like God said when they would do that, that the curses would come down. They'd finally get right. And then it wouldn't be long. They'd leave it again. They never seem to learn the lesson. But we're not any better today. In churches today, so many people are compromising on the truth. Well, there's a difference, preacher, between convictions and what's the other word? Preferences. Well, hey, just because it's a preference with you doesn't mean it's not a conviction with me. And if God says it and it's not your conviction, you're the one that's got a problem. If God says something, you ought to be saying, amen, God's right. Instead of trying to explain it away. Because that will only lead you away from him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we are sinful people. I think about the songwriter, Lord, when he said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And then he pled, take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, please. I pray that we'd prepare our hearts for what we're going to hear this Sunday throughout the week. God, would you do a work in our hearts? May we see your word as you see it. God, will praise you for everything that you do in our midst. But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.